It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is episode 19 in my series, Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. Uh, when we were going through uh, the series on World War I, uh, we had uh, a team that would set up chairs uh, in uh, the chapel, and they became they got, they got more and more creative. It's sort of like if you're setting up chairs the same way every day, that's just boring. And so they would set up chairs in different formations and then ask if I could figure out what it was. Usually it was like the shape of nations, because we were dealing with a lot of key nations in, uh, in World War I. So it's pretty funny. Every time we'd come in, we even had one morning where we all wore mustaches. I don't know. You guys will have to go back into the archives and Eric is going to actually wear a mustache in one of those messages, at least for like the first, what, 10 minutes or so. Okay. So sorry that I took that off. I actually felt bad afterwards that I probably should have worn it the whole way. Like some of the people in the audience wore it throughout and it was very, uh, very noble, uh, of them. So today I came in, the reason I say all that is I came in and our chairs are set up in a very, very unique way. And uh, so, and it, it did, you know, I did solve the puzzle. It is a boxing ring. And so that fits with this series. If you've listened to this series, episode one is called The Fight of the Century. Then we had another uh, message called The Iron Chin. You know, so we've had some boxing theme uh, in, in this. And of course, the boxing theme is a great theme just for the Christian life and for what we feel like we're in the midst of today. But uh, in this boxing ring, uh, there are two chairs in the boxing ring and they have like some kind of uh, one of those towels you pull out of a towel dispenser in, in the bathroom. And those are functioning sort of like the towels that are available to the boxers in their corners. Very impressive setup. So Brian, I just want to, you know, give a shout out to you for a job well done. Boy, convincing. And it, it sort of brings us into the spirit of the series, doesn't it? Uh, to be able to sit in a boxing ring. I mean, some of you guys are sitting in the boxing ring. I mean, that's pretty fun. So guys, we have a, uh, a message today that is a story-driven message, but with a point, and this is going to, I know I said that I'm not going to dive into World War I or World War II, and some of you would accuse me over these past few messages of lingering a little longer in the World War II zone than I probably should, especially if I'm skipping over it. But uh, you have to look at this from two different uh, angles. So imagine this is a 40-part series, and this is part 19. So where should I be uh, halfway through. If I was going to be mathematical about this, where should I be? Now, see, that it's going to test your math on this, too, because it's a 60-year period from 1914 to 1974. So 1944 would be a really good landing spot for somewhere around my 20th episode. So I've had to linger uh, in the World War II time period just a little longer than I would have expected to make sure this all balances. That's my excuse. I just haven't been able to teach on World War II for a long time, and it's one of my favorite topics. And I'm not really teaching on World War II today, but this is in the midst of World War II, right? So I'm not teaching on World War II. I just want to get that out on the table. But the event I'm talking about just happens to be in the middle of World War II. Does that make sense? Just sort of an irony, a, a, you know, a, an opportunity. So this is called the power of the White House. And you know, if you're an, if you're an American, that means something to you because whether or not you like it that the White House has power, we, we understand that there's power. This event in history is actually one of the things that's going to establish 
the power of the White House. And it's a conference over in Morocco in January of 1943. It's called the Casablanca Conference. And so the word Casablanca for many of us just triggers memories of black and white movies. And that movie is going to come out at the same time as all of this. This is all happening simultaneously. And so Casablanca becomes a very strategic location and it's going to be leveraged for a key conference. That key conference is going to actually be a watershed point where American power is going to supersede British power in the world. And so British, the British power has always been sort of the dominant empire. And in this conference, you're going to see Roosevelt sort of take the upper hand and begin to press the American agenda. So this is all part of, I mean, it, it actually has a lot to do with our country and our history because we've all grown up with America being basically the chief superpower. But this is sort of the moment that we're seeing it happen in January, January 14th, to be specific, is when the conference is going to start. So the Casablanca Conference, January 14th through 1943, technically what I should say is January 14th through the 24th, it's going to be a 10-day conference, in 1943. So here's the reason that these chief world powers of the allied sort are gathering. So we're going to have, you know, Winston Churchill, British prime minister. We're going to have President Roosevelt, the American president. We're going to have uh, two leaders of what we call the French resistance or free France that are going to be there. We actually have Eisenhower. We have General Marshall there. So, I mean, this is like the who's who. Stalin is invited, but he can't make it. They're in the midst of the Battle of Stalingrad at the time. Not the best time to uh, come to Casablanca. So the issue, and this is Winston Churchill's attempt at describing the tensions, and I don't know that you'll understand this, so I'll put it in layman's terms after this. But Winston Churchill says, the British chiefs of staff thought the best policy was to follow up torch vigorously. Now there's a lot. See, if you, if you know World War II, that makes sense. If you don't, you know, that's why I'm saying I'm not trying to teach on World War II, even though I'm thoroughly enjoying this right now. So Operation Torch is a specific tact uh, that the Allied forces are going to take to hopefully distract uh, the forces of Germany from Russia and to open up the Mediterranean. And so Germany is ruling Northern Africa. Rommel and his tanks uh, are taking control in Northern Africa. So they're going to hit Northern Africa. And if you've ever heard of the Battle of El Alamein, which was one of my previous episodes, that's going to be in, in the Operation Torch. And so Torch is successful. And the British chiefs of staff, those are the military leaders of the British armed forces, thought the best policy was to follow up Torch vigorously. In other words, to keep doing it, to keep taking territory in Northern Africa, accompanied by as large a preparation for crossing the channel in 1943 as possible. While the American chiefs of staff favored putting our main European effort into crossing the channel and standing fast in North Africa, here was a crucial issue. It could only be resolved by the president and myself, and after considerable debate, we decided to meet and settle it at Casablanca. So I'll try and make that a little more layman's terms uh, as we move forward. But long and short, the British and the Americans are not seeing eye to eye of what they should do in the war effort. And now you mix in the French. Now the French have 
capitulated to the Germans, and that's the start of World War II, uh, which is going to lead to Dunkirk in the darkest hour because the French forces are going to basically surrender to the Germans. And then the Americans are going to be surrounded, uh, the Americans, the British are going to be surrounded in Dunkirk. And so there's going to be this sort of puppet government formed in France called the Vichy government. And there's going to be the, you know, Charles de Gaulle is going to sneak away in a plane, great escape story, like make movie material. And he's going to find his way to London and he's going to set up the operation to, for the French Revolution to stand against the traitors of his country. And so he's going to use the BBC radio network to sort of propagate that. However, there's another general named Henry Girard. I don't know if I'm saying his name Frenchish uh, like I'm supposed to, but he also wants to lead the French resistance and the uh, Free France movement. And so these two, are, two men do not like each other and they're competing with each other, which is dividing the French resistance. So you could have a French resistance, but half of them were over here with de Gaulle and half of them over here with Girard. And that's not helping. The British and the Americans can't see eye to eye. So we have splits and splinters and divisions all over the place. What's the good of the word allied if you're not allied? And so the conference is going to be called to see if we can work together to accomplish something as opposed to shoot each other and actually hinder our own cause. Doesn't this sound like the Church of Jesus Christ? Which is exactly my point today. So why Casablanca, Morocco? That's a good question. Uh, so if you understand your geography, you have Europe just to the north. See, Spain is there. So if you went straight up, you'd sort of run into Great Britain. You'd run into France. Uh, this is the Mediterranean if you were to veer to the right and go through uh, that you know, Gibraltar area. And so Morocco is going to be right there on the northwestern corner of, uh, uh, of Africa. And there's Casablanca, so it's right on the ocean, beautiful location. And uh, this has been held by the Germans until two weeks earlier uh, in this, so who had just been set free. Now, remember, the Germans had won every single battle up until El Alamein. So at this time, the, the Americans and the British are tasting some sort of victory here. They had the Battle of Midway in the Pacific, and the Americans won that, which was a shocker. And then you have the Battle of El Alamein, and then a series of other victories in Northern Africa, one of them being to clear out the Germans of Casablanca and of Morocco. And so this is a, a, a victory. And so almost to make a statement of, our, of their victory, they're going to meet here. Now, there are other reasons, and I have a quote. The president, and this is from Meredith Hindley in Time Magazine, the president suggested meeting in Cairo or Moscow, so that's Roosevelt, and Churchill replied with Iceland. Roosevelt, however, had no interest in going anywhere cold. I should prefer a secure place south of Algiers or in or near Khartoum, wrote the president. I don't like mosquitoes. Isn't that funny to hear personal correspondence of these men on that? Uh, however, I was looking at that a little closer. Now, Iceland, I could understand. Why in the world would anyone want to go to Iceland in January, right? Uh, however, that's the point that uh, Churchill has. It's like, well, that's the best spot to go because we don't want to be found. Uh, this, is all, this all has to be high secrecy, and Iceland just seems like a really good place for that, right? Who wants to go to Iceland and be spying? Uh, and, but then look at look one of the options that the president suggested. Cairo, now that's warm or Moscow, Moscow in January is no better than Iceland. In, so I'm try, still trying to figure that one out. That one doesn't make any sense to me, but we'll keep moving. 
So they do choose Casablanca as their uh, destination. So who's who? The list of famous characters. So here's Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Now I'm going to call him denomination number one because he is going to come in with the British perspective on what should happen. President Franklin Roosevelt, denomination number two. General Charles de Gaulle, denomination number three. And General Henri Girard, I, I see. I'm tr anytime I try and sound French, everyone knows that I'm not. Uh, and I, I, what I do is I try and uh, twist my, my mustache, you know, and do this thing. And then sometimes people buy it and they're like, oh, maybe he does speak French. But I, I don't know if I've fooled anyone. Denomination number four. So here's the defense plan. This is pretty cool. Because, and I wish I could, and I should have gone deeper into all of the tactics that Churchill is going to use and the chiefs of staff are going to use, Roosevelt's going to use to sneak out of Washington and make it look like he is going one place, turn around and go somewhere else. I mean, it's really fun how they are going to elaborately dupe anyone that's watching, even those closest. There's only going to be a few people in both countries that even know this is happening, lest it leak. And so, I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool concept, but so they're going to stake claim to a hotel recently bombed by the Germans, and they're gonna use it as a base. So they're taking some place that was bombed and using it as a base purposely because it doesn't look like it would be a base, right, because of that. And they're gonna procure all the surrounding villas and stretch miles and miles of barbed wire around its perimeter. Then they're going to station anti-aircraft guns and hundreds of soldiers at every strategic vantage point. And you're going to have some of the most powerful men in the world in one place. Now, there's one thing that cannot happen, and that is that this location cannot uh, be exposed. And the fact that they're gathering there, because what would the Germans do if they knew that they were gathering there? Well, uh, it doesn't take that much brilliance to know what they would do. And they have the Luftwaffe, and they have a lot of strength in Africa still. And they're not that far away. So you don't want this to leak. So here's the, the villa or the hotel that they actually stayed in. <clears throat> so Morocco is crawling with spies in January of 1943. Now, some of us could be like, now, why did we choose Casablanca? Because this is, haven't you ever seen the movie? Spies everywhere, right? If you've ever seen that movie, it's just like, this is not a good location for this because they're bound to be exposed. I mean, Iceland sounds so much better to me. You know, I have to admit, and especially with what I know about the story, it's like, hey guys, let's not go to Casablanca. So Mar Morocco is crawling with spies in January of 1943, but no one must know the allied leadership is there. It is essential, guys, that this doesn't get out. However, look at this. There's a Spanish spy. I don't know who, what his name is. Uh, and he is reporting to the German high command. Here's what he reports. Roosevelt, Churchill, de Gaulle, Gerard, and chiefs of staff are meeting in Casablanca. Oh, and that goes straight to the Germans. I mean, can you think of a worse situation than this? In the middle of World War II, this is about as bad of a situation as you can get. Okay, right here. Now, I, I can't tell you how this is going to play out. But I'm just telling you, this is not good. Okay, this is about as bad of a circumstance as you can get, which is part of why this is a fun story. So the all-important goal, the reason they're gathering together is to do one simple thing, to agree. And you could say, well, how hard is that? And my, I've had a front row seat to that same question in the Church of Jesus Christ, because Paul is going to go out of his way to say, I want you guys to agree. 
and we're like, yeah, I, do you see what Paul says? You agree with me. <laughs> That's, I mean, everyone says I'm right and everyone needs to change to adapt to me. And that isn't necessarily how agreement works. And one of the things that A.W. Tozier talked about is he said, you know, if, if you have a whole bunch of keys on the piano, the key for that piano to actually get in tune is that it must all work with a tuning fork outside of itself. It cannot try and set the tune itself. It must all adapt to something outside of itself. And that's the key for all of us. We need to heed something outside of ourselves that is the standard, and then we can find a tune. So here's President Roosevelt, and this is what he, the Americans want. They want a free hand to fight Japan in the Pacific, and they need to use their resource there. And that doesn't mean they don't have additional resource to spend elsewhere, but they really don't like the fact that the British want to keep fighting in North Africa. That is a very British desire, and it has very little to do with dealing with Hitler. And they know that they need to deal with Hitler, and they need to deal with Hirohito of the, of the Japanese. That's the American agenda. And they're like, uh, we're not worried about our trade routes through North Africa. And so to take our resource and stick it to help your economy is not really what our agenda is. No offense, Great Britain, but that doesn't match with what our agenda is. So they want a free hand to fight in the Pacific, and they want to cross the channel. This is the English Channel, and they want, there's something called the Atlantic Wall, and it is all the side of Europe that Germany has taken control of. So you cannot get across the channel and survive right now, because the Germans are waiting. And it's very difficult to cross the channel. That's, that's a historic concept. It's very difficult to, to set up a battle plan onto beaches. And because by the time you get out of the boat, you're dead. And that's, this is a very difficult crossing. The Americans want to cross the channel in 1943 in just a couple months. They're like, let's do this thing. And they want to knock Hitler back to Berlin. The British know how hard it is to cross that channel. And so Winston Churchill is like, you guys have no idea. Because Stalin wants the same thing. He wants to distract all the German troops that are hitting Russia, like Stalingrad right now, which is one of the bloodiest battles of all history. And he wants the Germans to need to tend to something on their other coastline. And yet the British are like, we can't do that. You can't just cross the channel and invade. You guys have no idea. We've been living here for thousands of years. This is, this is a very difficult thing to do. And so that's what the Americans want. And here's what the British want. Prime Minister Churchill wants to continue to press forward in the North African campaign. He's like, guys, we have them on their heels. Let's keep pressing this. And he wants to bait Hitler by striking the underbelly of Europe, Sicily and Italy. He wants to go up the boot and he wants to hit that way. And they want to wait on crossing the channel until spring of 1944. Why? So that they can build landing uh, operations that can actually help get across where they're not boated you know, out in the, uh, the water and then trying to swim in or cart uh, men in. And so they're trying to figure out landing craft that can do this and they have them in development. They're like, give us some time and we can actually do this and win this. But if you rush it, we're gonna lose and we'll lose the whole war if we lose this. And so that's Churchill. And of course, Churchill 
is, I mean, I'm, I'm a big Churchill fan, so I always look at Churchill as being one degree smarter than everyone around him, right? Now, but that also could have to do with the fact that I read all his memoirs and I don't read the memoirs of Roosevelt because Roosevelt died before the end of World War II, so I can't read them, right? So I have a tendency to be biased Churchill, so I, but I want to lay that on the table. It could be that he just has the final spin that I'm listening to him like, oh yeah, very brilliant. Well, well said, Winston. And by the way, my middle name is Winston. I don't know if I've mentioned that. So then we have Charles de Gaulle and General Girard. Oh boy. Both want to lead the French resistance free France. That's their entire agenda. Hey, I should be the one in charge of this. No, uh, you, who are you to be in charge? I'm the one that, hey, I'm, a, you know, and they're, they're, they're arguing back and forth of who's better, who's more important, and who would be a better leader. It's very embarrassing, guys. Uh, so, I mean, for the French, uh, this is very embarrassing. I'm, I'm sorry, if you're French, this is just sort of an embarrassing story. So is this even possible, this whole unity thing, this whole agreement thing? Is it really possible to bring such different folk together and have it work? Boy, have I wondered that about the church. If you've ever seen the Church of Jesus Christ and just gotten a cross-section of its makeup, you would wonder the same thing. I mean, it actually is humorous, if you are willing to laugh, at how odd we are and how different we can be. You take a charismatic and all the way to the orthodox side of things, the, the very stiff, you know, collar, uh, you know, suit tie type of one with the guy with the Hawaiian shirt and the, you know, Bermuda shorts and the, uh, uh, the, the sandals on, you know, with his hair going all wild uh, and, you know, his unkept beard. It's like uh, you have two completely different sorts of people and yet they're both believers in Jesus Christ. How in the world, this is like, these guys are all allied. They all want to see the same thing happen. They want to see Hitler go down. They want to see Hirohito stop. They want to see Mussolini dealt with. They all want the same things in a general sense, but then they have sub-agendas. They have things like the, the British want to clear the, uh, the Mediterranean so that for, their, for their trade routes. You know, this is their economy depends on it. You know, this is where they get oil from the Middle East. They can't live without the oil. And the Americans are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why is that our priority? I thought our priority was dealing with Hitler. Well, while we're dealing with Hitler, we could deal with him by clearing our trade routes and having our oil and then go up the boot. And so you can just sort of see it from everyone's vantage point. It's like, huh. Boy, that seemed, that's a little different agenda than I have. So 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. Now I plead with you, says Paul. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Boy, does that sound realistic? That there be no divisions among you, but that you, perfectly, you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? So I have a World War II version of that. So this is World War II 1, uh, verses 10 through 13. Now I plead with you, allies, that we all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among us. By the way, if any of you don't know of this scripture reference, it's made up, okay? This is, this is Eric's rendition. I need to clarify that. This actually isn't in the Bible. This is a rendition of what it says in the Bible for World War II. 
Now I plead with you allies that we all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among us, but that we be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it is obvious to me that there are contentions among us. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am American, or I am British, or I am a free France, or I am really a free France. That is exactly what it is. I'm a free France. Oh, I'm a really a free France. Should we be divided? And this is the Casablanca conference right here. American history, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Now I plead with you, America, that we all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among us, and that we be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it is obvious to me that there are contentions among us. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am black, or I am white, or I am of red skin, or I am of yellow skin. Should we be divided? I mean, that's like our entire history lesson so far. How about Denominations, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13? Doesn't that sound like a real book in the Bible, Denominations? Now I plead with you, American church, that we all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among us, but that we be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, for it is obvious to me that there are contentions among us. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am Southern Baptist, or I am Charismatic, or I am Lutheran, or I am Methodist. Should we be divided? The threat is not just internal. Remember the Spanish spy. Uh Uh-oh, guys. I mean, we're having enough issues just trying to get along uh, with ourselves, let alone the fact that there's a Spanish spy that is leaking information, that turkey. Can you believe he said this? So here's, remember what what he said? Roosevelt, Churchill, de Gaulle, Girard, and chiefs of staff are meeting in Casablanca, and the Germans have this knowledge. (gasps) Do you guys feel the pending threats? I mean, we're trying to gather in this bombed-out hotel, and the Germans know it. They know that this group is meeting in Casablanca. Oh, no, guys. So back to the story. I just wanted to keep the tension going. It's, it's like if this is a good movie, you always have to sort of hint that you know, there's something else going on. There's a, you know, some darkness that is attempting to cover the situation. Going after agreement. So this is going to be 10 days of egos, strong opinions, and caustic remarks. So here's Churchill's take on it. When we got to Casablanca, we found beautiful arrangements made. There was a large hotel in the suburb of Anfa with ample accommodation for all the British and American staffs and big conference rooms. Round this hotel were dotted a number of extremely comfortable villas which were reserved for the president, for me, for General Girard, and also for General de Gaulle, should he come. The president arrived in the afternoon of the 14th. We had a most warm and friendly meeting, and it gave me intense pleasure to see my great colleague here on conquered or liberated territory. One of my favorite things about World War II is actually the relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill. It's actually really cool. It's a great relationship, and they're going to have a very close bond. The question of de Gaulle had meanwhile been raised. So General de Gaulle is quite the character. And he is going to be a character in history from this point forward, too. The path was cleared for the French forces now rallied in North and Northwest Africa to unite with the Free French Movement round de Gaulle and comprising all Frenchmen throughout the world outside German control. I was now most anxious for de Gaulle to come, and the president agreed generally with this view. I asked Mr. Roosevelt also to telegraph inviting him. The general was very haughty and refused several times. De Gaulle doesn't want to come. You know why? Girard is there. And he doesn't like Girard. Girard's, you know, vying for his position. So the president and Churchill want these two to work together. 
Why would we work against each other when we're trying to accomplish the same thing? And it makes sense for us when we look at this, we're like, come on, idiots, just work together. You're splitting your strength when you do this. Well, what do you think God probably feels about the church? It's like, hey guys, we could get a lot done if we could do this together. Instead, we're splintered all over the place. Even in a local community, every church for itself is basically the attitude. It's like, well, I don't want these people to get my uh, congregants because they could woo them over there with their, you know, you know, Saturday morning men's breakfast or, you know, oh, and they have the, this artistic theatrical thing that they're doing in the evenings. It's like, oh yeah, I could see what they're trying to do. They're trying to bait my congregants. And so everyone begins to put a little box around what they're doing to survive. And that's exactly what you see these two French uh, resistance men doing. So Winston Churchill continues, I then got Anthony Eden to put the, mo- the utmost pressure upon de Gaulle, even to the point of saying that if he would not come, we should insist on him being replaced by someone else at the head of the French Liberation Committee in London. At last, on January 22nd, he arrived. So that's with two days left in the conference. He was taken to his villa, which was next to Girard's. He would not call upon Girard, and it was some hours before he could be prevailed upon to, he could be prevailed upon to meet him. I had a very stony interview with de Gaulle, making it clear that if he continued to be an obstacle, we should not hesitate to break with him finally. He was very formal and stalked out of the villa and down the little garden with his head high in the air. (laughs) Winston Churchill continues, I knew he, de Gaulle, was no friend of England, but I always recognized in him the spirit and conception which across the pages of history the word France would ever proclaim. I understood and admired while I resented his arrogant demeanor. This is classic British-French relationships right here. Here he was, a refugee in exile from his country under sentence of death in a position entirely dependent upon the goodwill of the British government and also now of the United States. The Germans had conquered his country. He had no real foothold anywhere. Never mind, he defied all. So 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 4. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Now, what's interesting to me is 1 Corinthians is not just clear, it is uncomfortably clear with the fact that divisions and the sponsoring of divisions and the breaking of fellowship over petty things is actually an evidence of the flesh ruling in the church. And yet we do it ironically under the banner of what it says in 1 Corinthians everywhere else. Almost every single denominational split, the proof text is in Corinthians. And the entire book was written to deal with denominational differences. That's the irony of it. And so we see that when we are babes in Christ, we have a tendency to not want to receive the greater work of grace in us. And we get so fixated on these small things that lead to envy, strife, and division. And Paul is saying, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? You see, we aren't called to behave like mere men. We're called to behave like Christ. 
John 13, 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We have a tendency to to define one another in a very closed sense. It's like, well, what he means by that are those that are like me in an agreement with me, and my love for them is what defines me as a disciple. Instead of the one another being more clearly understood as those that are believers in Christ, which is such an uncomfortable swath that it really gets you know, us hot under the collar at times to say, you've got to be kidding. I cannot stand with that person. The power of agreement introduced in the Tower of Babel. I was standing in the, in the kitchen, you know, the house that we're building over here uh, yesterday, and I was talking with Russell Blom, and he just started waxing eloquent about this, and he was talking about something completely different than my message. I already had my message done, and I was listening to him, and afterwards I said, I think I might steal that for my message in the morning. So even though I'm stealing it, I still have to give credit where credit is due. He brought up the Tower of Babel, and he was talking about the power of agreement, ironically, and I was just sort of marveling as he was talking. It's like, how strange, because that is the exact thing I just put the final touches of my message on. Uh, And he was showing that agreement, whether it's godly agreement or just human agreement, has power. And when there's one mind amongst a people, there's nothing they can't do. So Genesis eleven six talks about this. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, these are bad people. These are people that are rejecting God. And yet when they have one mind, one language, the ability to communicate and agree, there is nothing that they can't do. What a fascinating statement. Now you understand if you just take that same parallel and apply it to us as the body, how much more so is that true for us who have a heavenly unity instead of just a human unity? So human agreement versus heavenly agreement. So what we see at Babel is a human agreement. What we are going to see in Casablanca technically is they're seeking a human agreement, not a heavenly agreement. But human agreement has power. And when there is the ability to compromise and come to a place, a landing spot, I mean, that's what the Constitutional Convention was. It was a place of compromise, yes, not of character, but of certain things you hold on to to say, how can we work together to accomplish something greater? And the same thing is going to be here, and it's going to be true, proven true for the allies in World War II. They have a more powerful foe at first. Hitler and Hirohito, the Japanese and the Germans and the Italians, are in a place of strength and they have all the momentum. The Americans are coming out of the Great Depression. They are not in a position of strength. The British are almost defeated. France has fallen. And they're a puppet now of Germany. It looks terrible, guys. If, you were to, if I were to go freshly through World War II, which, by the way, I'm not teaching on World War II here, but if I was to go through World War II, you would all feel like it is impossible for the Allies or for Great Britain at one point in time was standing by themselves to actually get out of this alive. And yet, there is going to be a unity that is going to come. Ironically, it's going to happen because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And Roosevelt and the American people are going to awaken from their stupor of saying, this isn't our business, whatever's going on in Europe, we don't have the ability to deal with it, to suddenly saying, we're going to deal with what's going on in Europe, because this has to stop. Now it's on our shores, it becomes very, very serious to us. 
And it's going to lead to something we could call human agreement. And I mean, some of the parties in this are rather odd. You think about it. You look at the, the French, this free, free French, free France group, and they're not the healthiest bunch. Well, how about Stalin? Stalin is in the batch too with us. I mean, we have an odd bunch of bedfellows here, but there's an agreement. We need to deal with Germany. We need to deal with Hirohito. We need to deal with Mussolini. And it actually is going to create a great power. So, but human agreement versus heavenly agreement. When we agree as the body of Christ, it's not just with each other. What we're doing is we're agreeing with God. And when we agree with God, it's like the tuning fork that brings all those keys into a place of tune, into a place of agreement, into a place of concert, one with the other. And when we do that, something far greater than human agreement happens. When we actually, as the body of Christ, form into a united front, nothing shall be impossible to us. Psalm 133. So this is the entire... Uh, psalm right here. You know how sometimes you just read a verse of a psalm? This is the entire thing. It's sort of fun to stick it all on one slide. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. So that word for unity is yachad. And so I'm going to come back to that word because it's a togetherness. It's like a likeness to say, yeah, me too. It's, it's how, how pleasant and how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in this place of like-mindedness, of this place of agreement, of this place of, yeah, me too. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There's something very, very special about this in the kingdom of heaven, which is why the enemy goes out of his way to try and distort it and to hinder it. You know, what we do here at Ellerslie is decidedly aimed in this direction. And for those of you that have tasted it here, I mean, I don't know that many of us are going to liken it to precious oil running down a head, down a beard, running down garments. I don't think any of us have ever had that thought. It's like, yeah, it's like that. But what's interesting about that picture is you have the high priest, Aaron, and he is going to have this anointing upon his head, and it's dumped upon his head. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and it's going to land on the head. Well, who's the head of the church? Jesus. But then, who is his body? And you're going to see that same anointing come down over all of us, and this body is going to function together. So it is a fascinating picture, even though at first blush, we're not going to be like, yeah, that's the metaphor I would have chosen to liken this beauty and this purity of, of unity. Uh, and then I don't know that it's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. But there is something very, very profound in this to show the picture of life, capital L life, that comes, is propagated, is, uh, is exhibited in and through this unity or this yichad. So how do we reach yichad? We must agree on true north. So this is one of the key things. If we're trying to walk in a direction, let's, let's say we're on a hike and we're in the woods or in the mountains and, we're, and one of you is like, I think we go that way. Well, I think we go this way. Well, I think we go this way. Oh boy, we're not gonna be able to walk together, are we, if it's all different directions? And so this is where a compass comes in. And a compass 
has to be based on something. It is based on something, and we could call it true north is, uh, is, is a good way of describing it. And when the compass fixes to true north and we all agree with true north, then if we're supposed to go west from there, we all are going to agree because we agree on true north where west is. And so when we agree on true north, then we all are set according to the same east, west, north, and south. When we don't have a true north and we fix, I've always said this, in the scriptures, there's a lot of options for what you could build your life around. And so some Christians build their life around morality. Is morality in the Bible? It is. They build it around sacraments or attendance of church. Is that in scripture? Yeah, it talks about baptism. It talks about you know, not forsaking the gathering of believers. Yeah, it, it is there. But they make that their Christianity and they make that north. And it's like, well, you're not doing that, therefore you're not right with God. And they have their, they, they have their centerpiece. Some people are going to make it soteriology. And it's going to be these five points of either Calvinism and Arminianism. They're going to say that is the center and they're going to make that true north. Some people, it's eschatology. It's what's going to happen in the end sometime. And so they're like, oh, this is the pre-trib, this is the mid-trib, this is the post-trib. They have, there's a lot of options, by the way. And they're going to make that every discussion and everything they read in scripture pertains to that. That's the, that's the lens at which they look through. If you do that, and if you make your issue head coverings or tongues and prophecy, you make it any of these issues that are real things in scripture, but were not meant to be north, true north for you, you will find that it will mislead you in your overall life. It will mislead the church. We need true north. What is true north of the scriptures? So true north, 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. Uh, could you imagine we open up our Bibles and it says, true north. Uh, no, that's not actually what it says on 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. But here is what it says. Paul is going to go to this same church that is divided, that is having all sorts of issues, and he is going to make something clear. And what I'm going to say is he is making clear true north. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I could say the entire Bible could be summed up that way. It's all about Jesus and what Jesus is going to do. And you could say, what does the Old Testament have to do with that? Everything. The entire Old Testament is going to talk about the man that is going to come and what that man is going to do. That's the Bible in a nutshell. What does it do after Jesus does it, like in the four Gospels, and we're going to see that man come and that man do something marvelous? The entire New Testament is going to explain what that man did and, and how that impacts us. The entire Bible is basically sum, summarized is in that statement, Jesus and him crucified. I'm going to call that true north. This is what the church has always affixed itself to, and this is what causes us to function well together. So I'm going to call this the great anthem of Christian yachad, or agreement, or togetherness, or yeah, I'm with that. Yeah, that's the way I want to go. And it's Jesus and what Jesus did. That's what I'm calling true north. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read this anthem, okay? And it's actually, you know, it's fairly long, but it's just, you're going to like it. It's almost like reading poetry. It's, it's really beautiful. Jesus, 
He who created the heavens and the earth, he who is God in the flesh, he who perfectly demonstrates God's glory, he who enunciates God's holiness, he who reveals God's perfect righteousness, he who brings us God's salvation, he who manifests the love of God, he who is the way to the Father, he who, is without, he who was without spot or blemish, he who perfectly fulfilled the Messiah test, he who proved to be the sent to the Father with perfect canonicity, he who fulfilled the scriptures and validated their authenticity and perfect integrity, he who took the wrath of the Father and was accursed for man's rescue, he who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He who was crucified in obedience to the Father. He who redeemed man with his blood. He who atoned for man's sin was the satisfying offering in man's place. He who was accursed, condemned in man's stead. He who destroyed the power of sin and death. He who overcame the devil. He who triumphed over the grave. He who died but rose again on the third day. He who rent the barrier between God and man. He who brought man forgiveness of sins. Jesus. He who brought man cleansing from his sins. He who brought man victory over sin. He who, man's, he who is man's robe of righteousness. He who condemned sin in the flesh. He who created an avenue for man's freedom for the law, from the law of sin and death. He who provided himself as man's vehicle of victory and man's passage unto the Father. He who ascended to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. He who, was given a, who, he who has given man a new life in himself. He who has made man a new creature in himself. He who has supplied man a new citizenship in himself. He who has seated man in him in the heavenly places in himself. Jesus, he who is over all things, he to whom all things in all the heavens and the earth are subjected to, he who is king of kings and lord of lords, he who went to the Father that the spirit of God might come to believing man, he who purchased man the opportunity to have his very life, his very spirit, his very power within, he who made the physical body of every believing man his actual temple, he who in reality desires to live and move in the body of a believing man, he who will enable and empower the believing man to obey, he who will cause the believing man to actually triumph over sin, Jesus. He who will cause the believing man to live as he lived, love as he loved, and do even greater things than he did while here on earth. He who supplied us the great gospel that we might know his indwelling power. He who supplied us the great gospel that we might be more than conquerors. He who supplied us the great gospel that we might partake of his divine nature. He who gave us not a powerless form of religious godliness, but himself, godliness itself in spirit power. He who, is, who causes believing man to be immovable and unstoppable. He who is the head of this immovable and unstoppable juggernaut known as the church. Jesus he who has brought believing man into a place of heavenly adoption. He was called believing man into intimate communion and fellowship. He was placed his name upon believing man and set his seal of love upon him. He who desires to be known intimately and well by those he has redeemed. He who has the deepest affections for those who have, who have come to him in faith. He who demands absolute and instant obedience. He who commands that man yield up his life to him. He who beckons man to pick up his cross and follow him. And he who says count the cost before you come to him. He who says that he will spew lukewarmness out of his mouth. Jesus, he who commands man to repent from his sins, his old life, his old deeds, and his every idol. He who commands that man walk in faith, unswerving confidence in his ability to perform that which he promises. He who commands that man confesses his sins one unto another. He who commands that man must forgive others as he has forgiven them. He who commands that man must renounce every tie with darkness. He who commands that... that he who commands that man must deny himself. He who commands that man let not sin reign any longer in his mortal body. And he who that, when he begins a good work, is faithful to bring it to completion. Jesus, he who doesn't just command, but enables man to obey his every command. 
He who is the great rescuer, the great intercessor, he, he who calls his followers to live as he lived, and thusly rescue the weak and needy and intercede for the vulnerable and oppressed just as he did. He who calls his followers to take what he has freely given them and share it with those who do not have. He who calls his followers to reveal his nature, his behavior, and his attitude in every circumstance, every encounter. He who first loved that his beloved followers might demonstrate his great love to this world about. Whew, what a list. That's the Bible right there. It's about a man named Jesus and what that man has brought to us. He has revealed to us the Father. He has brought us to the Father. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He has even given us the key to unlock the scriptures so that we can see what it's all about. So speaking of the Casablanca conference, was the conference successful? Well, it actually was, kind of. You guys remember that there's some doom and gloom hanging over this conference. The Germans know that there's a conference being held in Casablanca. Well, it's okay to gulp, guys. I mean, that's like serious stuff. I mean, you don't mess with the Germans. And I mean, if they know that all of the powers of the Allies, except for Stalin, are there, what would you do? I mean, it doesn't take much to, to know that you should do whatever you can to take out that location. Take all the military power you have and stick it right there. Uh-oh, guys. So here's a, a picture on the final day of the conference. And it was a press conference. And they, have, they had to split up Girard and de Gaulle. So uh, Roosevelt sat between them. But uh, it's, the descriptions are really funny uh, of this. So Girard is on the far left. Roosevelt the second from left. That's de Gaulle sort of in the middle. And then Churchill, sort of a classic known character uh, to the far right. After they finish with those four, then Roosevelt and uh, Churchill are going to have a press conference, uh, just the two of them. And that is where uh, Roosevelt is going to take a bold step and say something that was not agreed at the conference. And Churchill is going to, for the sake of presenting them as a unified front, say that he agrees. But Roosevelt is going to make a declaration that he is, they're going to accept, the Allies will accept nothing but absolute surrender. And Churchill looks over at him like, what did you just say? And Roosevelt just keeps going. And Churchill has to make a decision socially because everything about their public alliance is critical. And that's the whole point of this conference. But this is actually where you're gonna see the Americans begin to get the upper hand just in that moment. Because Churchill has to, he, I mean, the British Empire would typically put the Americans in their place. But in this situation, Churchill is going to submit to that bold statement of Roosevelt, and for more than just that, but that is a key moment in history, actually. So the results of this conference, it was agreed that America should have a free hand to address the Japanese in the Pacific. And so that's a key thing. The Americans can focus on the Pacific theater with most of their strength. It was agreed that continued pressure should be placed upon the underbelly of Europe and that the Allies should attack Sicily and then Italy. So that's what the British were wanting, and the Americans are going to support that. It was agreed to build up more strength prior to attempting the attack across the English Channel. The invasion of what we know as Normandy, the Normandy invasion, is going to be delayed until the spring of 1944, and all historians would agree that was brilliant. And de Gaulle and Girard actually shook hands, 
Now, it was for the cameras. They didn't really talk the whole time except for cursed at each other. But Roosevelt, at one point in time in front of the cameras, is like, guys, it would just be decent to show people that uh, you can shake hands. And so they're going to get up and actually pose for the cameras and shake hands. The first time, it's going to last about a half a second. And, and, he, and they didn't, the photographer's like, we didn't get it. We didn't capture it. And so they're going to ask him to do it again. And I think this must have been the second one. But uh, these guys, especially de Gaulle, does not like touching this man's hand. <laughs> so, but we have a picture of it right there, guys. It's proof that they, I mean, they're in agreement. Look at that. Uh, so we could say, well, you know, sort of. Uh-oh. Remember the terrible threat? Oh, no. Guys, everyone's out in the open. We even have the press there. I mean, what's going to happen? Can't you just feel it? Oh, no. So let me uh, remind you of the threat. Roosevelt, Churchill, de Gaulle, Girard, and chiefs of staff are meeting in Casablanca. <gasps> oh, no. The Germans can't let this go by without intervening in some regard. I mean, this is the ultimate dream situation for the Germans right here. And they have this, this memo. They know that they're in Casablanca. The Germans knew of the meeting and yet, what? Shockingly decided to do nothing? Well, there's a reason for that, guys. Listen to this. This is one of the coolest things. I, I love this. So we're going to translate the message from Spanish to German that was sent. Listen to how it translates. This is how it would have been read in Germany. Roosevelt, Churchill, de Gaulle, Girard, and chiefs of staff are meeting in White House. Casa Blanca. That translates his White House. And so the Germans are not going to do anything because they can't get to Washington, D.C. and destroy that. They have no power to do that, whereas they did have power to intervene in Casablanca. But because it came from a Spanish spy, they and it was written in Spanish, they translated Casablanca to White House in the official memo, and the Germans had it the whole time but it said that they were meeting in White House. <laughs> That's just, that is great. Now, what I want you to catch in that is God's hand in this very theme when we meet in Casablanca. When we, and so my, my name, the power of the White House, is multiple fold here because there is something about meeting with the intention of unity of Yechad, that there is something beautiful to God and he will do whatever it takes to preserve that. This is at the center of his heart. And so, yes, he will even, you know, help with translating uh, things to the enemy so the enemy is not aware and able to stymie the forward progression of the church being the church. So Casablanca, God's favor rests upon such noble ambition as agreement one with another. He's a big fan of Yechad, and it is beautiful and precious to him. So for us, my, I've oftentimes said this, you help an orphan and God helps you. I've oftentimes said that one of the safest places in any battle is to hide out in an orphanage with a whole bunch of orphans because it has a special protection upon it. And the same is true with Casablanca. If you are gathering together and coming together to seek unity, there is some extra special measure of protection that comes upon it. It's called God's blessing. God can bless. When Leslie and I were, before we even had a relationship, 
I remember sitting down with her dad and I was trying to make sure that this was protected. And I wasn't actually trying to pursue a relationship with her. I was trying to actually seek correction. It's like I'm spending a lot of time with this young girl and I, you know, I've blown it in this area of my life and I just sort of wanted the dad, you know, Rich, to speak into my life and tell me what I'm doing wrong. He says, Eric, ever since you've been in her life, she's drawn closer to Jesus Christ. And I'm like, okay, uh, that's not the correction I was looking for. He says, Eric, I, I just want to, you know, to bless you uh, in whatever way God wants to foster this relationship. Like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not looking for that. He goes, I know, but I just felt like I should give it to you. And one thing I've oftentimes said is that with the blessing of a father, with the blessing of parents comes the blessing of heaven. When you try and go around that and you try and skate around the way God has orchestrated things, you don't have blessing. But when you follow God's pattern, you have blessing. This ministry has a certain blessing upon it, not because we're brilliant, not because we're you know, some great business people. It's simply because we're after yichad in the body of Christ. And the enemy gives us extra special attention. There's memos from Spanish spies going out you know, in a flurry. And yet God has preserved us for all these years because we are pursuing something sort of Casablanca-esque. You know what's going to come out of this is the Normandy invasion in 1944, which most people would say is going to change the war. There's going to be a greater uh, picture, never have been a greater picture in war of a unified front hitting a coastline than the invasion of Normandy. And it's all coming out of unity. And so I think that's a pretty, 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 I don't know if it needs two descriptives for it, but pretty special picture of what can happen. That's just human unity. What, what would our Normandy invasion look like if we were to actually come together as the body of Christ? So Lord, we ask for that. We ask for the impossible. Just as impossible as it is for Gerard and de Gaulle to communicate, even shake hands. For the Americans and the British who have been at war with one another in the past to actually agree and to come together to fight a common foe. Lord, we need the body of Christ today. This is not a one church operation. This is not a one man operation. This is a body operation. And Lord, only you can bring it about. But I pray that each one of us in our own way would be willing to be as Christ toward one another instead of as mere men towards one another. Lord Jesus, we love you and we trust you and we ask you for this favor, this blessing to be upon us. It's in the great name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.